Hello and welcome to another episode of By the Horns. Today I had the privilege of speaking to Hichu Kreer, a South African structural engineer who's currently living and working in Paris, France. Hichu has been doing the rounds on the podcast circuits lately, discussing energy policy, something he knows quite a lot about after doing his master's degree in structural engineering of nuclear power plants and then working in the energy industry for the past decade. Hichu is extremely well read on a wide variety of topics and is someone who I think provides a lot of signal amongst the noise of our current energy debate. Being an engineer, he provides that rational clarity that is missing from most conversations about green energy. Unfortunately, I got so excited by the conversation that I lost track of time and Hichu had to leave at the end of the podcast pretty urgently as he had another call to jump onto. But it was a great discussion and I look forward to our next one. I'm sure you'll enjoy this as much as I did. But before we get into the show, here's some brief words from our sponsors. All right, guys, I'm excited to tell you a little bit about my latest venture that I've started, Bitcoin Only. Are you a Bitcoin enthusiast in South Africa? And are you tired of the hassles of importing hardware wallets from overseas? Are you annoyed by the unexpected customs fees, post office incompetence, and the expensive slow forex transactions? We'll struggle no more. Introducing Bitcoin Only, South Africa's only dedicated Bitcoin store. At Bitcoin Only, you can easily acquire high-quality Bitcoin hardware right here in South Africa without the headaches of import duties, international shipping fees, and the fear of the post office losing your package and then giving you that blank, dead look while telling you that the system is offline. And here's the exciting news. Bitcoin Only is currently offering an incredible deal on the Blockstream Jade, one of the most feature-packed and cost-effective hardware wallets on the market today. But that's not all. Bitcoin Only also provides expert consulting services, whether you need guidance on securing your digital assets, setting up a Bitcoin will to ensure your loved ones can access your holdings in the case of the unexpected, or assistance with recovering Bitcoin from an old hardware wallet, Bitcoin Only has you covered. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to simplify your Bitcoin journey. Visit bitcoinonly.io today and use the code BTC at checkout. That's BTC at checkout on your next purchase. Head over to bitcoinonly.io today. That's bitcoinonly.io. Cheers. Cape Town is getting its first Bitcoin conference. From the 26th to the 28th of January 2024, the Adopting Bitcoin Cape Town conference is taking place at the Cape Town International Convention Center. The theme for this conference is one that I think is extremely interesting, and it's all about parallel institutions and Bitcoin. Now, most South Africans know about the likes of the AfriForum, Saakalicha, the IRR, and Solidariteit. These are parallel institutions that for the past few decades have been filling the vacuum left by government incompetence. Bitcoiners are building the parallel institution of money, so this conference aims to bring these two groups together to discuss ideas and learn from each other. No parallel institution can function without the ability to transact, and Bitcoin can't function without motivated individuals building the foundations of the new parallel economy. This makes these two groups natural allies. If you want to be part of what is going to be an extremely interesting conference taking place in the most beautiful city on earth, grab yourself a ticket today. There's only going to be 350 of them, so get one before they're gone. Click the link in the description to get yourself a ticket and be part of history being made. That's Adopting Bitcoin Cape Town from the 26th to the 28th of January, 2024. See you there. Okay, and we are live. Hiku Kreer, bye, welcome. Welcome to By the Horns. Good to have you, man. Thanks a lot, Ricky. I appreciate the invitation and uh, thanks to your listeners for listening to me. It's my pleasure. So... I've come across your your work in the last few months, and uh, for me personally, just finding signal like this is rare. Um, finding someone uh, who gets straight to the heart of the issue, 
like I find you have. Um, you clearly very well, well read, you write a lot, you articulate your ideas a lot. So I'm very excited for this discussion. I think, um, I think people are going to be hearing a lot more from you uh, in the future. So uh, yeah, welcome to the show. Oh, so thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. My pleasure. Uh, could you mind giving us a bit of background about yourself before we jump into the topic? Yeah, sure. So I'm from South Africa originally. I stay in France now. I'm also now a French citizen, so I'm a French South African. I became a French citizen this year. So basically, I've got a background in civil engineering. Um, I worked in South Africa for Lafarge at the time for about two years after completing my studies. I also worked in cell phone tower construction for about six months, so it um, wasn't, wasn't something major. And then I got to learn the coal business because the coal in South Africa, the fly ash, is used for various applications. Uh, my grandfather was actually one of the scientists that pioneered in the country at the time, so he worked for the CSIR years ago. And that ash is in the Burj Khalifa. So anyway, the coal, coal this was my introduction into energy, uh, sort of through him and construction. So I've always had an interest in both of them. Then while working there, I studied French because Lafarge was a French uh, company. Um, and then uh, one of the lecturers proposed a scholarship for South Africans that would like to study in France. And I applied for the thing. And at the time, they gave me the scholarship to come and do my master's. So at the time, I wanted to do it in cement, but I missed the enrollment for that university. And then I applied for a random degree in nuclear civil engineering without knowing too much about nuclear at the time. And then um, since then, I've worked in a variety of nuclear-related infrastructures. So I've worked on Inkley Point, um, which is a big nuclear power station they're constructing in the UK. We did the design in Paris. Um, I worked for French, French-Belgium company at the time. And then I worked at ITER, which is the International Thermonuclear Reactor, where they're attempting fusion in the south of France. Um, we've also, as well, in, this, in that office close to Marseille, we did a lot of... Um, what they call re-evaluation projects for Electricity de France, which is their version of ESCOM um, on what they call external aggressions. Can a nuclear building still resist paleosethnic post-Fukushima events, nuclear safety, all of that type of stuff I did. And then um, my wife's Iranian, so she came back from Iran. She, she did a PhD in France, actually. She's a mathematician, and she went back. And then when she came back, she got a job in Paris. So I quit the job then. I came to Paris, and I've since then been working in the oil and gas industry. So I left nuclear for that to try and get a feeling to how something similar does it, but gas is very efficient. So I, I sort of became a, um, you can say, a armchair nuclear expert, not nuclear, nuclear and energy expert. And I've now even been invited by people to podcasts and I've given a presentation to Free Market Foundation. They'd say I'm an expert. I don't know if I am. Um, but yeah, that, that's more or less me. You know, something that's missing in the diet, in the discussion uh, today and it's gotten worse over the last few years is the discussion of energy being the basis for civilization and for standard mm -hmm. of living. Um, in my in my opinion, our standard of living is driven by kilowatts. You know, how much power do you have available to you? That's the ability to get machines to do work for you. And if machines can do work for you, your standard of living can increase. And this is what makes nuclear such a phenomenal energy source because it's so energy dense, right? Like this is... Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but like this is way more energy dense by orders of magnitude than anything else we've got. Yeah, but you see, you I, I caution against something here. So first of all, yes, energy is the capacity for work. And the book I always recommend on this is Sir Anthony Wrigley's book, The Energy and the English Industrial Revolution. And he uh, concluded, made the same conclusion that the Japanese actually made during the Meiji restoration of the Industrial Revolution. So the Western, as we said, it was property rights, free markets, rule of law, that democracy that allowed us, our societies to develop, which might be true. Um, but uh, if you read actually the communists of the beginning of the last century, Lenin in particular, Lenin had a statement, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something that if we... Uh, 
don't uh, develop energy as a society, electricity as a society, we stay a business society forever. There was some communist slogan. So the communists came to the conclusion through Das Kapital, which Karl Marx actually wrote, that the steam engine was what Karl Marx the prime mover. So it's the capacity for work, and we can argue that wealth is just energy being dispatched in the economy. So everything is energy. Um, you know, your your house behind you was this this a, a scraper that built it. There's a um, it was constructed. This this potential energy. It's it's an aeroplane. It's, um, you know, it's got energy to, to move around. So everything uses energy, and you you can argue that um, you know GDP per capita is actually low entropy fuel. Now, what does low entropy mean? It's energy that has not been disturbed yet. And that's why, if you follow the logic to that, um, you come to the conclusion that's why coal was so sufficient during the Industrial Revolution. That's why fossil fuels are so efficient, because you can just put it everywhere and apply. Now, nuclear has got a weird conundrum where it's energy dense, uh, which is true, and it's got a lower form of entropy, actually, than coal, because the energy that went into coal actually comes from nuclear, geothermal energy derived from nuclear. Some people say the Earth's a nuclear reactor, others say it's from the Big Bang, Okay, whatever your view is. Um, uh, so it's the basis of the energy that decayed, and that energy that's stored in coal, in one way or another, came from nuclear. But then you have this weird conundrum, why Why is the cost of nuclear then said to be expensive if if it's got this energy density favor and it's also got the material density favor, use fewer materials. And it actually comes down to the materials, if you're if you, from the science, where why it's true that nuclear is energy dense, uh, we still struggle to exploit its full thermodynamic potential. Um, and that is because you still need water uh, to make a turbine, to, to, to you know, to run a turbine to generate electricity, and to contain the water, the nuclear pipes have to be 300 degrees, and that's to maintain the boron. So there are other reactions and other factors that limit us from fully exploiting it. Of course, that's only the pressure water reactor. There are different types of reactors, but they all have their own constraints. They, they are physical constraints to exploiting it fully. So you're right to have an intuition to say that. Yeah, okay, um, it's energy dense, but the, it's the same mistake people would make by saying, but um, protein content determines food prices. It does to a point, but then you get to a point where you just eat in a restaurant, and why is one more expensive than the other? And that comes to subjective value to services, to other things, right? So nuclear also has its limits, but it, it certainly has different potentials and hasn't been fully exploited yet. I suppose the other thing of nuclear is it, it requires massive centralization. Uh, it's you've got to build a big nuclear power plant to extract the energy. It's not like coal that you can, uh, well, I suppose coal's got a, a scale factor to it as well, but you just can burn the coal and generate energy. It's not that you have to split the atoms apart like you do with nuclear. So nuclear requires like scientific investment and it's much more, uh, it's further down the line um, than in terms of technological development than, than burning coal. Um, but nevertheless, nuclear obviously has a lot of potential um, and Places like France, where you live, run, I'm not sure the percentage, but a high percentage of France's energy comes from nuclear versus South Africa, where, you know, it's a small percentage because we only have one nuclear power plant. What is it, though, that is, I mean, we saw a massive uptick in nuclear power plant production, people building plants, uh, obviously, when they discovered the, the technology. Um, I don't know if I'm right or wrong on this, but it would seem like nuclear production is tapering off and they're not really building mm. that many nuclear power plants anymore or at least there's strong opposition to it and why do you think that there is that opposition so there's two things that um there's a few things that came together first of all the um, first application of nuclear was the atomic bombs hiroshima and nagasaki and in particular in in western countries the political left particularly in germany and the united states was highly opposed to it so there was a counter-cultural movement 
in the 1980s that came to oppose it. And then came Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, and that just sort of strengthened their arguments. But it actually predates that. It, it comes down to the first Earth Day uh, protest. And I've even spoken to Patrick Moore, who is the um, founder of Greenpeace that changed his view. The first protest of the environmental movement was against the hydrogen bomb. So there's always been this cultural fear to it. And when humans are scared of stuff, we tend to impose safety regulations onto it. Um, Simultaneously, in the 1930s, there was actually an excitement about nuclear when Marie Curie and, and these people discovered it. And there was new reactors being built and, and lots of creativity into that field because there were no regulations at the time. Now, um, then uh, around the 1950s, um, the United States government, uh, this was General Eisenhower in particular, looked into the effect of radiation fallout on the population because opposition to atomic bombs during the Cold War was rising. Okay. And um, in particular, they looked into Nevada and Utah. Now, Utah is in Nevada, they dropped 12 atomic bombs, and there was a population, particularly the Mormons next door, who were exposed to the radiation fallouts. And there were questions being raised are they going to get cancer? Um, are they going to get sick? What are we doing? And um, Eisenhower constituted what was called the Bayes Committee, and this committee was stuck, was, was staffed by geneticists who were surprisingly related, linked to the ominous-sounding Rockefeller Institution. And there's a lot of speculation there, but they came then to accept the safety standard of radiation, saying that every single dose of radiation is dangerous, um, which is just absurd because a banana is, radio is radioactive, and they called this standard linear no-threshold. And since then, um, th that standard itself has affected the cost and the knock-on effect. Because you just impose safety regulations on a technology, um, you increase the risk. And then private investors would say, I'm not going to take that risk. I'm not going to spend $200 billion that Japan spent um, after Fukushima, for example, um, even though they should probably not have done it. And then there's also just the social psychological effect. You can't see radiation. People don't know it. You need a high understanding of what it is. Um, so all of that adds to the perception of risk. And in my view, the cost is driven by the perception of risk. Also, the 73 oil crisis played a role here where the United States hiked interest rates. Uh, nuclear has got large plants, as you said, they need low interest rates. So that sort of chased a lot of engineers out of the industry. And since then, the industry hasn't recovered in the US. But surprisingly, if you look at Russia, China, and Iran even, um, and now India. India is building at $2,000 a kilowatt hour. The US historically was 3000 and now at 10000 in the States. So the Indians got one-fifth the cost. Some countries still have the cost of nuclear under control. Um, I would say it's, it's a more or less competitive with coal if you do it proper, if you do it right. I don't think it is as cheap as the proponents argue, but certainly there's a business case from it if you buy it from the right country and if you build it in the right country. And, you know, I, I thought a lot about this question, but I think it comes down to the culture of fear. Because the regulations don't change that much between countries, but it's how they're being applied and interpreted and sort of the culture of courage. Are we scared of nuclear or are we not? That comes with it. Do you, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying about people being scared, but do you not think that they, that the fear is being driven in a certain direction by certain actors um, that are anti-nuclear? No. Well, if, if you take it, nuclear historically came from utilities. Utilities always had a captured market. ESCOM had a captured market until <laughs> until they really performed. I mean, you have to perform badly before people start asking for alternatives, right? And ESCOM is the good example of that. But generally speaking, they're a captive market. So they never saw the need for advertising, for communicating to the public. And that made them vulnerable to, to attacks. Where, in contrast, the oil industry historically has been private-driven investors. 
Um, and they were throwing money left, right and center in ads, in, in uh, anti-nuclear propaganda, if you will. In Australia, the coal industry was opposed to it historically. So um, th there's a lot of interest. I mean, it's difficult to say who exactly is pushing it. And then also the environmentalists were pushing the le political left in the United States uh, at one stage at the long march through the institutions. So I, I had a list at one stage of all the interest against nuclear power, but it's quite extraordinary. And then there's also yeah. the fact that there's no real grift in the nuclear industry. The oil market annually is $4 trillion. During oil shock, it goes up to six. Nuclear is 600 billion. The cow dung market in India is bigger than the, oil, than, the, than the nuclear market. So you've got a small market already that is susceptible to attacks that saw no need historically to communicate to the public. So of course it's going to happen. You know? Yeah. And I mean, I saw this stuff firsthand. Uh, we were speaking off air about it. Um, I studied at Stellenbosch and I was in the uh, botany and zoology department. And uh, we went to the Feinbos Forum in um, St. Francis in 2011. And Tastepunt is that nuclear site that ESCOM owns that um, was down. People think it's in Jeffrey's Bay, but it's actually near Cape St. Francis. And the Feinbos yeah. Forum was right there. And we had a bunch of leading academics at this forum, and all of them were rabid, rabidly anti-nuclear, um, obviously because they were all the botanists and the zoologists. And um, they effectively managed to lobby and play a part in shutting down the nuclear deal that was happening in South Africa. And the area I grew up in, um, my family home, is is another site where uh, there's a nuclear site, Bantam's Clip, which is out between Pearly Beach and, and Kranzboy. And another site that got shut down where we should have had we should have had three nuclear power plants by now we still only have one so yeah. the the environmental lobby is very strong against it as i've seen firsthand yeah and and the environmental lobby i did a interview with ken brown from the capital research institute they get well, the institutions are staffed with 2.3 billion dollars annually which is the cost of finishing the pebble bed by the way Okay, now, that doesn't all go for anti-nuclear stuff, but you're just like, do you really have to throw that much money at the technology if there's no business case for it? I mean, you're really desperately trying to do so. And the interesting thing, South Africa shows this to me. So I've looked at opinion polls in the country, and it's uh, I haven't, I've sort of put my finger on it, but if you look at the Afrikaners, they tend to be okay with nuclear, roughly in favor. Some are against, but mostly in favor. The black population is overwhelmingly in favor at the moment, um, and, and so are the colored and Indian population. But if you go to the English-speaking whites, um, you know, we tend to starve Stellenbosch these days for weird reasons. They tend to be opposed to it. And they are the guys who often get their power from nuclear in, in Cape Town, right? So there's a strange sociological uh, phenomenon. It's, it's not driven by rational debate because the deaths of nuclear per kilowatt hour is more or less the same. The cost depends how you price it. But yeah, it, it might be a bit more expensive than in solar and wind, um, you know, the, but that's if you accept the levelized cost for intermittency can be compared to base load. But it's by, by and large on par with coal. Um, you know, and, and if you do it properly in mass production, you can actually get it down. And then the other benefits, if South Africa were to build it, we don't take the construction risk. So that extra cost is not on our, our balance sheet. I've never seen that being debated in the public. It's just nuclear is bad, the Russians are coming. And then also the anti-Russian yeah. propaganda is played in the yeah. backdrop of it, as if Russia is the only country that builds it. Exactly. Right, exactly. Um, and I do apologize for my people. That's why I brought my Afrikaans buyer, so it means a but um i do apologize for the anglo in cape town they make very bad decisions all the time but uh it is what it, it is what it is <laughs> but um look we love putting a solar panel on our roof and then feeling good about it but um yeah look the the 
it's a it is a head scratcher and like you say it's not just russia that can supply these nuclear power plants i mean the french built kuberg south korea is building very like you're saying very cost-effective nuclear power plants the indians are doing it you've got a whole bunch of different suppliers to choose from um and maybe can you can you delve in a bit more into this about how you structure the deal so that you don't take the cost risk as a country yeah, so um, it's basically like building your house. I mean, if you're ever going to build your house, um, you tell the builder to put part of the money down. He takes a risk as well. So there's compliance. So if his people doesn't perform, he fires them and he gets a better manager, right? And it's the same point. So what they call vendor financing is simple. The risk is split between both parties. Now, the ratio depends on the deal. But generally speaking, 85% of the money comes from the vendor country. So a good example of this was when Finland recently built the EPR. The French were building it. And they were, yes, they did go over budget. But the French pensioners absorbed that risk. So it was better split between the two parties. And then both sides didn't get hurt. You know, ideally, obviously, the French didn't make money, but they said we protected our industries because of this. It was the Russians are even prepared to, to cover sometimes the entire cost. And only, you only pay them back in tariffs, especially with the boats that they're doing. Um, the South Koreans in Dubai, I think Dubai put up a greater proportion than the South Koreans. But the point is, the, the, the risk is split between both sides. And what's very important to me is if South Africa is going to embark on, on a nuclear mass build, I don't think we should go for mass build because there are risks. I don't think we can manage it that well. But one or two power stations over, say, a decade or so, just make sure that if there's overruns, you have construction penalties. And you say, look, guys, you you made the mistake. You said you'll fix it. And that's your problem, South Korea, Russia, or America, whoever builds it. And that's how we should structure it. And if you look at the countries with a good track record, the US and France at the moment don't have one. So obviously, you would evaluate attendance saying, does the contract have a good record in the last 10 to 15 years? And you eliminate those who can't build it on time. And you just accept from, from the better people. So it's like building anything, really. It's, it's just basic contract management. and. Yep. Again, you don't see this being debated. Yeah. So who are the world leaders in, in terms of reliability, in terms of cost? Who's the best? Uh, at China, South Korea and Russia at the moment. And then India is in their own country, but they're not in the export market yet, but they seem to be. Um, so I, I would see. say uh, South Korea is a quite attractive one for South Africa because there was 150 yeah. South Africans in Dubai uh, building that one. They had issues, though, with IP with the U.S., but I actually saw today that they won a court case that they can keep the IP. So South Korea is building cheaper than Russia. Uh, I, I haven't seen that being mentioned as well. So it, it just yeah. seems to be a no-brainer if you've had South Africans working on a plant and you get it back home. But again, I put the tender out, and then there's obviously geopolitics involved, which is often the decision. What maybe the Chinese of BRICS yeah. is a more attractive option. Chinese, yeah. Chinese are building quite affordable in Pakistan at the moment. There's suspicion that they might absorb the costs with their state because we, we, we're skeptical if you can build that cheap outside of your own country. They claim they can. But that's not our problem in South Africa. If they offer us a good price, you take the good price, right? It's like buying a car. It's not my fault if Toyota made a mistake on the spreadsheet. <laughs> so the, the, the buyer-seller distinction is not made. Yes. Okay, but now a cynical South African person would say to you, okay, but look at Madupi, Madupi and Kusile. They are like, Lord knows how many years over overdue <laughs> and five five x over budget, and they're not producing anywhere near what they should be producing. Yeah, be, how do you because, avoid that? Well, first of all, you don't do what you did in Madupi and Kasuli. So let's see how that happened. <laughs> um, in yeah. 1998, when Eskom warned the government we need to build more power stations, government didn't listen. So they instructed Eskom at the time to fire their planning office and their civil engineers. So when they rebuilt Madupi and Kasuli, they had one or two civil engineers and one guy was out of university. So what do you expect was going to happen with those contracts? And then they structure the contracts idiotically. So back in the apartheid years, we could build ourselves because we had this mass build program. But because for 10 years you don't build, people left the industry. So they had to rehire those contractors. And then they put out the contracts in a way that government would take the risk 
and pretend that this is not going to be overruns. It's the dumbest way to manage a contract. So they did everything wrong to incentivize corruption and theft, and then there was just actual theft. Um, but, you yeah. know, if we send out a tender for South Africa, I mean, if the contractual conditions are the same as with even Gusili, I would say obviously not. But if it's mm. done in a way where it's properly structured, like Kuberg was built in the past, yeah, sure. And let's assume yeah. it goes two or three years over budget. It's not our problem. In the contract, they should absorb yeah. that risk. Yeah. I mean, you're saying things that sound reasonable. Um, but, uh, it, it just from a, the cynical South African perspective, we've seen so many unreasonable things yeah. happen in our country by, by the government controlling things that, you know, uh, but that is what it is, I suppose. Well, the, the other thing why I would say it's not popular in the media is there's no, it's very difficult for middlemen to get into the deal because of the way the contracts work. Because there's five vendors, you just phone every five, one of them say, hey, what, how much does it cost? There's no middlemen, it's five calls. Um, Theoretically, you know, they can send a brown envelope to a minister, but you can do that for anything. I don't see how, I don't see how you can stop that, basically. And like a car power ship yeah. that donates a, what is it, a, a reserve or something. Uh, you know, yeah. this, that, that type yeah. of stuff can probably happen. I, I mean, I don't, um, you know, dispute. Uh, I, I mean, I understand people's skepticism to this thing. Um, do we need it in, in South Africa? Well, I, I would say, I mean, there's obviously don't need anything, right? But I, I would say South Africa's, now had repairs, refurbishment at Kuberg. It went relatively well, but yes, there were delays and overcast overruns, but mm -hmm. it's going to run for another 10, to, another 10 to 20 years. We have a semi-skilled staff there. Let's build another one. I won't say let's go overboard. And why would I say another one? Then all those old guys who worked on the pebble bed and stuff that are about to retire or have retired already can transfer some of their skills. You've got a few more buys in the country then. And then when the SMRs, the small modular reactors, come online in the next five to 10 years, and they've already been licensed, so it's not theory, theory that I'm speaking of, we have some skills in the country to, to license them. Um, what I caution again is us trying to build everything and us trying to manufacture the parts and the components. That, that's going to result in another Kusilia Madupi. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's an it's a acceptable risk coming under certain conditions. Um, and then the cost can more or less what Kuberg costs i think yeah so i uh, highly recommend people to go and listen to the interview done on the power hungry podcast if they want to get a bit more into detail on the nuts and bolts of of, of all of this stuff and um because you know we, we're not we don't have time on on today's episode but yeah fascinating what you discussed there on that episode but so in terms of nuclear fuels um you just mentioned the pebble bed and the and the small modular reactors the smrs what does the future of nuclear look like in terms of fuels in terms of new designs etc well, there's there's more or less three types of designs that I'm, you know, optimistic about. There, there are others as well, and I might be wrong. Um, the first one is just a smaller pressure water reactor, so a smaller version of Kuberg. Um, you know, it's it's relatively safe, and the advantage is private investors can get in because the big plants have these major they need state capital at this stage. Um, the other one is the um, pebble bait, which is a gas-cooled reactor. You can do it not just with helium, but with nitrogen, with carbon. There's, there's other types of gases, and they all have technical challenges that I think R&D is still necessary. But I believe in America, they're moving fast with it, and it's actually South Africans managing it with X Energy. And the Chinese have licensed one already, so they're probably going to sell it soon. Um, gas-cooled reactors have the advantage you can put them where there's no water. South Africa's got air-cooled coal, so we can replace those plants. And then the one I'm actually most excited about is the molten salt reactor. And there's Danish companies, two of them, Copenhagen Atomics and Seaborg. And then there's one in Canada, which is called, uh, I think it's Maltex, if I'm not mistaken. And the advantage of that one is actually a battery. It can load follow, so it can load respond. Um, so um, you can actually store the excess solar and wind and, and potentially make that work and, and decarbonize. Or you can just have nuclear working 
and then um, because it, because the salt can salt is a battery if you think of it. Yeah, so you, so, so you melt the salt and then that is that stores heat for a long period of time and that's used to boil water, right, or create steam. Yeah, is it's that, like, the, the I, I, I know if you know a concentrated solar uses salt. Yeah. It's yeah. the same principle, except yeah. you can replace that salt with uranium and, and thorium salts. So it can actually generate power on its own and it can stop. And you can just couple it to a turbine and then it uses the heat when necessary. And that way you've got a, a small uh, a battery in the area because the battery storage problems are big question marks over the renewables. Will the lithium ion diode batteries fall by another fact? I think they have to fall by a factor of six to be basically push every other technology out of the window. And we don't know yet. That's the answer. And are the uranium and thorium salts also mined by small Congolese children with their bare hands, like lithium is, <laughs> and cobalt is? Well, we can manage it in South Africa. By the way, I think that story is also blown out of proportion a little bit, but yes. Um, no, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what, I mean, uranium mines in South Africa, historically, if you mine gold, you mine uranium with it. And we've got mine dams in Carltonville where there's uranium everywhere and it's radioactive and kids are playing there. And by the way, nothing's wrong with them. I think this idea of radiation being dangerous is absurd. Um, but um, is that in is that in the East Rand, West Rand, Goldenville's West, West Rand. Rand. Okay, yeah. okay, because you might be wrong about something not being wrong with them, but we'll leave that for another discussion. Yeah, but uh, anyway, so j just a, a point on <laughs> that's radiation. Not, that's not the that's not the radiation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the um, uh, just a point on the radiation. This linear no threshold model I spoke about earlier says that every dosage of radiation is dangerous, but we now have good epidemiological evidence from the atomic bomb survivors, from Chernobyl, from all these accidents, that it's actually beneficial to you. So your accidental risk might come into proportion a little bit. We call that radiation hormesis. And this is what the environmentalists really hate when I say this to them, because they, they say I am justifying murder and child, child leukemia and all these things. But the, the, the correlation between, for example, leukemia and um, radiation is debunked. Uh, the idea that, that plutonium is toxic is complete nonsense in low quantities. Uh, radiation is not as dangerous in low quantities. I mean, high-end radiation is going to kill you, right? But yeah. so in other words, uh, if, a, if, a, if there's an accident theoretically and a population has uh, two or three CT scans equivalent, nothing's going to happen to them. They're fine. Everything, everything has a dose response curve. They're, they're, you know, there's no such thing as, as like an absolute tiny amount, you know, being toxic and then increasing. There's a, there's a dose response curve. That's what I am arguing. Yeah, that's what I'm arguing. Yeah. That we should change all our environmental laws on that basis. But you see, radiation law assumes precautionary principles, which is nothing ever safe. Now, it just makes no sense because your in your Wi-Fi is your five G is radioactive. <laughs> you know things of that sort. Yeah, the sun, uh, the sun the is sun. radioactive, like solar radiation. You know, yeah. you're getting radiation all the time. But, but you see, this is part of the dogma. Is the, the part of the fear came from the the fear narrative started with McCarthy actually. Uh, Joseph yeah. McCarthy basically attacked Oppenheimer and these people. And um, they, they made the public believe that every dosage of radiation is dangerous for you. Even though we gave kids radon toys in the 1930s and Marie Curie and them were, op were working with plutonium and uranium, they bare hands, things of that yeah. sort. And they obviously didn't die. So it's, it's clearly not as dangerous. Yeah. And, and what about the different fuel types? Um, so obviously we know uranium and plutonium mm -hmm. um, as fuels for nuclear power reactors. Is there, is there anything else on the horizon for different types of fuels? Well, so if you mix uranium with plutonium, you, call, you create what they call MOX fuel. That's what France is using in the reactors that reduces the amount of uranium uh, burnt. It makes it more efficient. Um, then you also have thorium. And you can mix, thorium is not fissile on its own. So it needs a little bit of uranium to kickstart it, but that reduces the amount of uranium and enrichment. And then uh, you need to take into account the Canadian and the Indian reactors. Um, they use natural uranium and not enriched uranium because they run on heavy water. 
and EV water is a, is a better moderator, so you don't need enrichment. And so Canada did that to not make atomic bombs. So there, there are other ways of, of, of skinning the cat here. Those are principally the, uh, the fields. Then there's also waste. Multics is looking into encapsulating waste as a field. And um, if you take, I think it's alpha or beta, alpha or beta emitters, I can't remember, one of them, uh, is totally harmless to humans. So you can actually put it in your house in a small reactor, but that's far away. And then you can imagine the greenies are not going to be happy about that, and everyone's got a small little heat pot at home. But that's feasible, technically. Um, so yeah, there, there are applications for the waste, and oh. there's actually an economy in the waste. It's, it's not waste, yeah. it's spent fuel, and it's, it's, some of it is valuable. It's like a gold mine. So we need to just figure yeah. out what to use them for, medical applications, things of that sort. Yeah. And are the, some of the newer generation reactors, like you just mentioned, are they using spent fuel from previous generations as fuel sources now? Or, they, or does that all just go into a concrete bunker and get kept there forever? Uh, so the French reactors use the MOX fields already. Um, the talks of the U.S. doing it, Russia was actually leading in this market. Now the U.S. wants to take back the market, investing into fuel again. Yeah. Um, in terms of waste, I believe Bill Gates's reactor is trying to power. I can't. I think it's a sodium cooled reactor. They're trying to use that to exploit it. But the, the thing with waste is, um, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical if you can use all of the waste as fuel because you get it to a point where your level of enrichment goes up. And then mm. you get into issues with the non-proliferation treatment. And then just take into account, after Fukushima, the price of uranium crashed by like 70%. So the economies of just you don't, of using the fuel was just not there. Just better to sometimes to put something in a hole. And it's like recycling. It sounds great until you start looking at the costs, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and just in terms of how much fuel a nuclear reactor uses or a person would use, I mean, I've seen, I don't know how true it is, but I've seen info, infographics of a, a person, if you, you took all of your energy consumption, if it was all coming from nuclear power, you would use like a Coke can of fuel in your entire lifetime. Um, yeah. Is that is that true? But that's, I'm not sure it measures per person, but if you take Kuber, for example, all the waste is half a tennis court yeah. after 40 years. Oh. Wow. That's nothing. Tennis court. And that's... And that's all in the fall pits there up in the northern Not all. So the low-end waste at fall pits, the high-end spent fuel. I'm not going to say waste because then people get scared. It's mm -hmm. stored on site. It's sure. uh, it's, uh, it's welded in a dry cast storage that weighs 200 tons. You can't put it in the boot of your car. Um, nice. You know, it's just you, have to, you, you need to steal a crane to steal it, basically. Who wants to do that? Um, and yeah. then um, the reason we haven't moved it to fall pits yet is because it's not economically viable yet because waste decays. And mm. um, because there's that decay function, it actually gets cheaper to kick the can down the road. It's a negative mm. interest rate. I see. So South Africa was clever, and the International Atomic Energy Agency would allow for the trade in waste, which is now heresy. We can take fault pits, we can say, come and store your waste. We put that in the bank, we earn interest on that account, and then the yeah. waste burns itself out, and you become a very rich country. So waste treatment is actually a, profit, a lucrative business if you just you know, create a proper business model. And how much storage capacity have we got at Falpits? Right. We've got enough for another 6,700 reactors last time I calculated. Just theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> how many reactors are there in the world? I, I'm not sure, but I, I worked out it's something for like South Africa's fine for the next like 10, 15,000 years. So we, we're okay. There's no issue for us. Yes, those Buddha, they plan. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I, I, I won't be surprised if the apartheid military carried some of the costs at that time, but it's paid off. So yeah. we've got the thing. Yeah. And just what, what we need, don't have yet is a, a deep waste depository. And there's talks now of building it. I'm not sure how much that will cost, but I don't even think that's necessary. 
I, I just really think sure. put the thing in a can and then put a few pay a few cards until the end of time. <laughs> I don't even pay them. Who's going to steal that stuff? I mean, if you no, no one, no, yeah. definitely. Um, okay, well, there's a topic I want to jump into, um, and that is the unit economics of a nuclear power plant. Obviously, you build this baseload power with a nuclear mm -hmm. power plant. They don't really like to spool up and spool down. You produce, you produce baseload power. But your your demand curve from your general economy, that obviously changes throughout the day and throughout the year. So yeah. you've got these like peaks and troughs that don't always match up. So with a, with a nuclear power plant, that baseload that's being produced at certain times of the day, you've got a big surplus of power that's presumably going nowhere. And maybe you could explain to people what happens to power in the grid that isn't consumed immediately. Um, Am I, am I right in saying it just gets vented into the ground, right? We just literally waste well, it. Usually, usually you pump water or you vent it. Um, yeah. Pump, pump storages for that, for that purpose. You see, that's why I, I don't think South Africa should have 100% uh, nuclear. Uh, France sure. did this in the 70s and 80s, and they built too many power stations. They didn't know what to do with them. It was actually sunken costs yeah. for some of them. But then the Europeans put interconnectors, and now they actually supply base load to Europe. So base load, I would say your, your nighttime demand you can easily match with nuclear. Maybe not all of it, maybe half of it. Mm. And then it's constant. Um, otherwise, you're mm. pumping water. But there's people who say that they can use that for hydrogen production or for other things. So you can make stuff with it. Whether that's economical, well, so the, I don't know. The case I would make is that we should be mining Bitcoin with it. And this is where, yeah. the, where the Bitcoin miners get involved, right? Because you can you don't have to distribute that electricity. You don't have to, you mm. don't have to send it anywhere. You can consume it on site and you can turn it into a financial battery. So you can, you've got a guaranteed buyer for your assets, which or for your product, which is the Bitcoin network. They'll, they'll buy any hash rate you can supply. It'll never, they'll never, you, they'll take everything you can give them. And um, then the, 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 the price of Bitcoin mining, obviously, or the, the money you receive for mining when you sell your Bitcoin, that is a global market so that's globally competitive so that's always this pressure driving it down so you're not you're not making a huge amount of money out of it right um no. but you have a buyer of last resort um and what i've seen happen in the states now is a couple of projects where guys are doing nuclear with bitcoin mining integrated have you have you come across any of these um so i i, I don't know anything about the states but i do know this that there was i think i can't remember if it was you ukraine or iran i don't know why i'm confusing with those two countries there was one guy who tried who almost used all the power of a nuclear plant and there was a deficit in the country at one stage for his bitcoin mining so there, there's certainly been experiments with that you need to look into that one if you go um yeah yeah so i mean the the difference though is that if you're mining and you're just pulling power off the grid. Um, that's a different story if you're just running your own Bitcoin mine. But if you are actually the one who's running the power plant, so you know a company that's running the plant and, you, and they're selling power back to the grid. So I use America as an example because they've got the, mm. the free market system for power there. It, it could change the unit economics quite substantially because they, when they're modeling this out, they're not assuming 100% of that 100% of their power is being purchased all the time, right? They're assuming a waste factor. Well, you've got what they call the bus bar, right? Or the levelized cost of electricity, which is basically, um, it's a cash flow model. And you say, I need to sell at $50 per kilowatt hour, whatever it might be, okay? And if the market price of electricity is more or less than that, I run a loss, loss or a profit. And then at the end of the year, you calculate all of that. So you obviously put some contingency in. And then obviously in my business model, I would say, what if there's a geopolitical shock? What if there's X, Y, Z? So if I can say there is a dedicated buyer, I go to a Bitcoin miner and I say, I've got a nuclear plant, this is my contract. And whenever there's excess, you agree to buy it at the strike price. So I break it at least. That might be a business model. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah. that, 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 yeah. that, 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 that makes sense to me. I mean, you would still feed into the national grid because the, the, the contract with national grid is as, an, as a Bitcoin, as a new operator, I don't want my plant to stop because when it stops, no. it over, you, you know, you damage the plant basically. So the, the, there's a potential yeah. of, of, of structuring contracts that way. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you could, for example, say, I'm going to, I'm going to install 5% of my product, of my capacity of Bitcoin miners. Yeah. So at the maximum draw of my miners will be at 5% of what I can produce. And then I know at least I can offset that amount because I have a guaranteed buyer for my power. So then whenever you've got your lowest demand, you can spin up your Bitcoin miners. Um, and then when demand, retail demand or industrial demand goes up again, you turn off your miners and you pump that power back to the grid because you get a uh, Yeah, if you, you can use your Bitcoin miners as a, as a heat sink, basically, as an electrical sink. Yeah. And that, that yeah, makes it's sense. It's like a pump storage. That's, a, that's mm. actually a, a, what, what we need. Because yeah. pump storage is just water and, being pumped for nothing, right? And you gravitate it down during yeah. your days. So Bitcoin don't gravitate down, exactly. but you switch off. So it's, you reduce amount, yeah. What it also does is it gravitates to your pocket because you become a much you become a much more financially viable entity. Um, exactly. Yeah, and, and and you can isolate yourself from from geopolitical shock as well. Um, it it becomes very interesting, and and the this is where the the renewable side of things isn't so it's not so attractive for Bitcoin miners um, because the power is so intermittent and you can't I really. Need, I, I need to model. join for my next chat, by the way, if you don't mind. Right. We got okay. two minutes left. Sorry, sorry about that. Um, okay, we're gonna have to cut it short there. Um, okay. Quickly before you go, where can anyone find you? Uh, your so they can they can find me Substack. It's Yihu's uh, uh, newsletter, or you can find me on uh, on Twitter or on YouTube with my name Yihu Greer. And yeah, Great. I'll add them all in the links below. Yihu, okay. thank you very much for your time, and we'll chat again soon, man. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Cheers. Have a, have a great evening. Cheers.